Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, episode 21, The Mayor of MH370. Hello again, everyone. I am Andy Tarnoff. I'm the publisher and founder of On Milwaukee, a Milwaukee-based local media company and daily magazine. And I'm joined by Jeff Wise, aviation journalist, author, sometimes documentary guest. He was in MH370, The Plane That Disappeared on Netflix, and he's also the author of The Taking of MH370. Jeff, this one is the episode that I've been waiting for. <laughs> I know. I know. We we went into a really big... We, we, we got into a lot of science last time, and it was long. I, I mean, I think it was worth it, personally, but I thought it would be nice to dial back a little bit, go into a different modality. Yeah. We're talking not about science so much, but about a human being, uh, a sort of famous MH370 character this week. Um, and so I think it's going to be a nice change of pace and also pretty interesting stuff. I have nothing against study of barnacles and drift models, and I know it's a really important thing. But there have been Good, two because there's going to be more of it. Yeah, we'll I know there are. We're on vacation today. <laughs> well, there have <laughs> been two episodes that I've been most excited yeah. about. And yeah. one, the first one was when we talked about the possibility that the plane went north and we right. went through its entire potential um, path to get to Kazakhstan. And then this right. is the one that I've also been really excited about because it's about Blaine Allen Gibson, who we touched right. on in the last few episodes. This is the guy who found a whole bunch of pieces of alleged and real and maybe not real debris. And the guy, he was like the luckiest guy in the world. So we're going to do a literal yeah. figurative deep dive on what he found and what the story is on this guy. And it, the more I read about it, the more it blows my mind. So I'm going to have a lot of questions for you. He's a character. He's a character and he's got a, just a crazy story. You know, sometimes you see these wild movies and you're like, it's called inspired by real events or something. This guy really is real events. He's he's real and unbelievable at the same time. Well, he's at least real. Um, mm. Whether his his resume is real, and we're going to kind of we're going to dive into that and see if, if people believe in it, because I'm calling bullshit <laughs> on half right. of this stuff. But let's <laughs> OK. You tell okay. me. You tell me what okay. you think. OK, so. All right. So you. You were ready. We've talked about how he was on your on your radar a year and a half before he found No Step. Just to recap, right. this right. is the guy who found the first found that No Step piece, which kind of turned this case upside down. Yeah, he swooped in out of pretty much out of nowhere. Like I had heard of him, but like almost nobody outside of very narrow MA three seventy world had heard of him. And he came in and he single-handedly revitalized the search for MH370 debris. Like nothing had happened since that July. And by now it was like February and nothing had happened. He came in, he found this piece. He kind of, he became a worldwide sensation. He inspired other people to start looking for pieces. Sure enough, other pieces started to turn up and he kind of caused a renaissance. So uh, paint a picture of this guy. I mean, like he looks kind of like Indiana Jones. He's got the, yeah. like, the brown fedora. He's got the brown leather jacket. Right. He's, he portrays himself as an adventurer and world traveler. Right. And he had already done a bunch of international quests, including an attempt to find the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Right. Well, how do we know this, though? It was because he... Um, you know, became went public kind of reluctantly, as you'll remember. He kind yeah. of came forward to a bunch of people who were interested in MH370. He sort of swore us to secrecy and said, don't talk about this. And then it kind of leaked out anyway because he'd been talking about it on, like, Facebook and stuff. So yeah. it leaked out. The, 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 I did an interview with him in New York Magazine. Other people started to call him. TV producers were calling him. Documentaries were calling him. He was all of it. I mean, it's like 
if you can imagine just waking up one day and you're famous, that's what happened to this guy. Like they were going to do like reality shows about him, right? I mean, or are they at least there were a whole, I don't know about, about that, it? but they're probably, but there were a whole bunch of, um, there were a whole bunch of um, documentaries that actually were made where he was sort of like the starring figure of these things. And so people were, everyone was calling him. He was going, he started going to Madagascar. He was, this was now his full-time thing was a going around finding pieces of debris, but then kind of being the media face because he was this larger than life character. Yes. He was dressed up like Indiana Jones and that was no accident. You don't accidentally wear a leather jacket in the tropical Indian ocean. No, that must've been pretty warm. Come to think of it. Maybe the hat was, I don't know how much he was wearing a leather jacket, honestly, but he was definitely, and he had this, and he was, and he was sort of, and he would talk to journalists and every journalist wanted to talk to him. It was a big story. And he would tell this story about himself as you alluded to that he would say that he had um, inherited some money. He was a full-time adventurer and he was traipsing around the world kind of in a very Indiana Jones way, kind of tracing. He literally was in search of the Ark of the Lost Covenant. And in fact, he he didn't even get into MH370 until he saw all the CNN news coverage, he says. So in yeah. a way, I guess you inspired him because you were on CNN a whole lot back then. Well, I don't know if it was me personally, but he yeah, he described how... Um, his parents, his, I guess his dad had died a while. His dad was quite a bit older than his mother, but his mother died, um, in the late two thousands. And so he he had inherited the house and I guess he had decided to sell it and he was was packing it up and he was, and as he was packing it up, he had the TV on and he was hearing all this coverage about MS370 and and his telling, it got really into his imagination. He decided, I want to be like, instead of searching for the Ark of the Lost Covenant, I'm going to search for MS370. I mean, I'm pretty into it also, but I don't have, I haven't like dropped my whole life to go traipsing around the world to do this in my Indiana well, Jones it, but clothes. It's, I mean, in his telling, he, that was all he did. He was an adventurer. And so okay. he was sort of at loose ends. He had no constraints. He didn't have a family or professional obligations. He was, a, he had been a lawyer, but was retired. He had a whole bunch of money. I, you know, he, he wasn't like, you know, the chairman of the local um, paddleball club or something. He could do whatever he wanted. And he, okay. And so. Good for that guy. So, in fact, he went back to Madagascar um, after he got all this press attention. He went to Ile Saint Saint Marie. There we go with the French. Right, right. In June of 2016, he was accompanied by a crew from France to TV. Do you right. know how he made that happen, or did it just happen? Oh, everyone was clamoring for him. Some of this information we have from this online publication called Seattle Met. Right. It seems to be sort of the uh, the on Milwaukee.com of Seattle. I checked yeah. it out. It seems it's actually a pretty good article. So when I first saw this stuff, I was like, no way. This is going to be some fly-by-night profile on this guy. But it's it's pretty well done. It was pretty meaty. It was quite long, actually. Yeah. So let me read some quotes to you, and then we can kind of dive into what this means. Right. So Seattle Met author said, they rode quads along the beach, and at the north end, he signaled for the party to stop. The camera crew had a good reason to follow him. He is, to this day, still the only person to find a piece of Flight 370 while actually looking for it. And he had done enough research to have a good idea where he might find more. But come on, it was still a one in a million find. There's no way he'd actually undercover, uncover another, right? With the cameras trained on him, Gibson dismounted and started walking. As he got closer to the object that had caught his eye, one could see, or he could see that it was gray fiberglass. It was almost a clone of no step. Later, he found a handful of other pieces, one of which looked exactly like the housing for a seatback TV monitor. He couldn't be sure, but he had a pretty good idea. They came from Flight 370. Yeah. I mean, we have footage of this, which we can roll. 
He's left behind the beaches of his native California to travel around those in the Indian Ocean. Dozens of islands, thousands of miles. The day after we arrive, we set off on a quad bike to explore the endless beach at Antisiraca. There are no tourists at the northern tip of the island. Tons of waste are regurgitated by the Indian Ocean over dozens of miles. An ideal hunting ground for Blaine. This beach is a perfect place to search. This debris here, it could be from south of Maldives, it could be from off the south coast of Sumatra, uh, Java Sea, or off the coast of Australia. It could be from anywhere. This is just junk from the ocean. Natural from a squid. These little bits of plastic, who knows where they're from. Fishing boats, large ships, they just throw all their trash over, overboard, and it floats around in the ocean and washes ashore here. That's where probably almost all of this stuff is trash from boats. Blaine says he only needs two things to find plane wreckage in this open-air rubbish heap. His eyes and a little luck. It's a gigantic undertaking, but after three hours of fruitless search, Blaine stops dead. Maybe. At his feet, something looks like a plain wooden plank with a few intriguing details. How many millimeters across this hole? Okay, he found it. He, not only did he find it once, he did it twice, and this time with TV cameras rolling. With a TV camera crew rolling, which the the writer of the piece found this kind of hard to believe. And when I read it, I was like, no way. Um, and, you know, different people, it, this is one of these real Rorschach moments where yeah. it's like, some people are like, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> I mean, and other people are like, come on, that's ridiculous. I can't help but be in that camp of, come on, this is ridiculous. Well, wait, there's more. Okay. So he, <laughs> he goes back, he goes back later that year. And now he's got a delegation of like family members next and kin. He's got documentary crew. Now we're looking at December 8th. Yeah. The group splits up. They're all combing separate areas. The camera crew follows Blaine. He's on another ATV. Didn't find anything. Turned around. He's making his way back. And then all of a sudden, he comes upon another piece of debris at the edge of the wet sand. He's past, past an area he'd been like half an hour before, meaning that in the inter not only did he happen to be at the right place, he was at the right place at the right time. That's the exact, exact moment that this piece washes ashore while a camera crew is rolling. And he says, quote, appears to be Malaysia 370 interior cabin debris. We just passed through. Nous sommes passés ici il y a quelques minutes et il n'y avait rien. 
Et là, sur le chemin du retour, il y avait ce morceau qui ressemble à un débris de la cabine du MH370. So he's a little bit overconfident, but he kind of gets a pass because he's right a lot of the time. But again, you have like, you, if you thought the first time it was incredibly implausible that he would find a piece. And remember the first piece he found, he found after only looking for 20 minutes, according to him. So he's just like a debris magnet. I mean, okay, and let's stop and say, this is, I, I've talked to other journalists who find this not incredible. And they're like, yeah, the plane hit the water, turned into like thousands of pieces. There's, th there's like thousands of pieces to be found. And to which I say, okay. I mean, they did ultimately recover several hundred pieces of Air France 447, our eternal reference. Mm -hmm. um, but there's 23, there's more than 2,000 miles of coastline in Madagascar alone. Think about the rest of Africa. Think about all the other islands in the western part of the Indian Ocean. Think about yeah, all the other continent. parts. Yeah. There's many, many, there's, okay, let's just call it 10,000 miles sure. of beach, of whatever. Um, and then think about all the stuff that's just still floating around or that went over to Antarctica or who knows. I mean, by now it's like been so floating around so long. Maybe it's still floating. Maybe it's ashore in Antarctica or, or you know, the, the Canadian Arctic for all we know at this point. So you have to wonder yourself, like, how big is the ocean? How, bi how big is the earth? What are your chances that you're going to walk down the beach and find a piece of this one plane that crashed two years ago, 4,000 miles away? So the people who participated in this search with him, uh, the next of kin, had stuff to say also. So Grace Subafiro mm -hmm. Nathan. Sorry for that one, Grace. A <laughs> Facebook post. She was, she was like, great. I mean, yeah. She, she she said just shows how debris can be there one minute and gone the next and vice versa yeah so she felt good about it but I, I seem to recall some of the next of kin were like mm, this seems weird yeah if you watch the netflix documentary um there's a french gentleman who is very does he's like, he doesn't buy it and i i think that blaine is a somewhat polarizing figure And I've run into other people like this in my life, people who are kind of very charismatic, um, kind of um, good storytellers, ha you know, have sort of a silver tongue and um, people either love them or they're deeply suspicious of them. And you, you were suspicious from the beginning of this guy, but you kind of warmed up to him and then cooled down on him. I mean... I would, no, not, I mean, I would say that when, before he found the pieces, I was like, I, we described it last time. Like his first, the first things he came at me with were pretty crazy, but then, you know, he, uh, he seemed okay. And then I had, I did a nice interview with him. He was very nice. Um, and I wrote the piece very straight for New York Magazine. Um, 
and then, but I was definitely like, is this real? One of the things that bothered me at the time, but doesn't bother me anymore. It looks this, the first piece that he found the, the, the no step, it didn't look like it had anything on it. And as, as you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how does marine, how do marine fallon organisms grow? It just seemed like if this had been in the water for two years, there should be a lot of stuff on it. Yeah. Later, we found out that there actually were things living in it, but they were like on the inside and the outside had probably been stripped clean, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I, I came to be, I, I, I think I would count myself among the camp of people who became pretty, not only skeptical of Blaine, but like, honestly, like pretty hostile. And I would, I, I think I've alluded to this before, but I think like, if you ask me like, what is my least proud part of my involvement in the MH370 mystery, I think I was, I kind of went off the, I kind of went off the rails with Blaine where I was just like, I, I, I so couldn't believe it. And I think I got kind of frustrated and I was like, I basically said, Blaine is blatantly planting pieces of debris, <laughs> which in retrospect, I look back on it and I'm like, dude, chill. And I, I, if I could give one little piece of context about all this. Yeah, please. At the time all this was happening, I was in the process of, I had worked for several years on a documentary about another larger than life charismatic guy yeah, named John McAfee. Yeah. And if you want to know more about this, you can see that there's a documentary that we made for Showtime called Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. That project, frankly, kind of went off the rails. Um, but the, 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 the fact is that I spent a lot of time basically chasing down a charismatic psychopath and trying to demonstrate to the world that this guy was a fraud mm -hmm. and everyone loved him. He, he was very charismatic, but he was a killer and a rapist. And 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 bad in other ways too. He was a bad dude. On lots he was of a really levels. bad dude. Yeah. And so this idea that like someone is coming along and being very charming, I really was kind of I wouldn't say triggered, but kind of <sighs> that way. The reason I ask you is because you've been a journalist for a long time, and so have I. And I keep talking about our bullshit detectors. Yeah. I, it's sort of like a, a a skill that we've we develop where you can tell if someone is lying to you or if they're uh, blowing something way out of proportion or hyperbolizing or, yeah. like it does i don't know if it's a if it's i can't put it on my resume but i have a at least in the many thousands of stories i've written and edited i seem to i can sometimes tell if someone is not all that they say they are yeah and i'm sure you do too because you do a lot of investigative reporting and serious stuff and you had just finished this mcafee stuff so if you had a hunch that something was fishy about blaine I could see why you would have stuck with that. So one of the things about John McAfee, like Blaine, he loved to tell stories. He loved attention. He loved the media. And he would tell stories that I would be like, no, that's not right. And I could, and so the instinct that I had learned, I guess you don't really learn instincts, but whatever. <laughs> Gain. Uh, the the, yeah. the 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 thing that i the trick that i adopted was look for inconsistencies like yeah. are these are these people telling stories that match consistently and and do they match like verif independently verifiable facts so with blaine i did have my skeptic flag up and my pattern was to everything he said i was like can i verify that can i check it did he tell this story a different way a different time and if yeah, he we're did, gonna see that he then did. I'm like, okay, yeah. this is, I, I'm going to look for, I'm going to try to accumulate evidence of this guy bullshitting. 
Well, we're going to see this come up again and again. And before I jump to the interstitial, I do want to talk about the concept of libel and slander because people who are not in this industry assume that anytime you say something that is potentially negative about someone is libelous or they call it slanderous, but in mm. print, it's the word is libel. And that's something that we've both had to be very careful about over the years because that's mm. how you get sued. And even if you're right, it's not a pleasant thing to go through mm. the threat and the defending yourself. The fact is that in libel, the truth is the best defense. And when you become Become a public figure, which Blaine very clearly was hoping for. You, there are different rules that apply. You get to talk more freely about someone who would be a private citizen. But again, just saying something negative about someone, if it's provable, doesn't make it libelous. I mean, there's definitely the legal angle, Andy, but there's also a part about credibility and seeming credible yourself as a journalist. And I feel that, like when I said that I was. I kind of blew my cool in talking about him and writing about him on my blog. I, I was, I got sort of personal and I was saying stuff that's like probably in the confines of the law considered non-actionable, mm -hmm. but it's like, listen, I'm a journalist. I can just deal in facts. Let me tell you about the stuff that I know, stuff that I can document. Um, if, if I have a, if I have a quote, if, he, if he's on tape saying one thing here, or if I have someone telling me that he said something else over here, that's, you know, a fact. And mm -hmm. so I don't need to get emotional about it. And, but listen, I'm human. I've, I've not always lived up to my highest ideals. I will say that. Do you feel like all these years later, you're now in a spot where you can talk about this rationally and without the emotion, or do you still have that, that flame? I do. Okay. I do. I think, I, I think I don't care in terms of like, I, I, no, I no longer feel triggered. I no longer feel emotional. Okay. I feel like I can say like, these are what, these are what the facts are. In a way, when I say, when I, when I relate a story and you're like, what? Like <laughs> I've, I've told these stories so many times that I don't, I don't even know if they seem plausible or not. I've just heard them so many times. And like, you're hearing it kind of fresh. So you're like, what? Yeah. Um, so I think I can just dispassionately lay out all the things. And we were talking about the concept of speaking negatively about negative things. And I'd like to point out that almost all of the stuff we're discussing here are we're using his own quotes, we're using his own writing, his own documents. This isn't really speculation, we're, we're, we're just putting it out there. Right. So sorry, Blaine, if you don't like it, you probably won't. At the end of 2016, he had found most of the pieces that had been turned in. And it wasn't just about how much he was finding, it was about how he was finding it well wait a minute okay let's just let's just let's not swallow this okay because he had found most of the things that had been found yeah i should have paused by the end of 2016 yeah. various people around the world or especially around the western edge of the of the indian ocean people had been coming across accidentally as they were strolling on the beach or what have you finding pieces of debris and we've heard some of these stories already and more people continued to find things but of all the things that were found, most of them were found by him in this kind of situation that we're talking about. He's maybe he was with a film crew. Maybe he's not with a film crew. We can, there's footage that we, if we haven't shown it already, we're going to put it on screen of him either walking like down these long stretches of sand, either like walking or on a, on an ATV or something, but just, it's just mile after mile after mile of millions of pieces of junk, garbage, debris, string, shoes, pieces, pieces of unidentifiable plastic. And he's looking at all this stuff and his eyes are lighting on pieces of MH370. It's like a now metal remember, detector. There are, not to exaggerate, billions of people that live on the border of the watershed of the Indian Ocean. Billions yeah. of people for every day, for a year, all their stuff going in. 
and um, that's the signal, that's the noise, that's the clutter. In amongst all that clutter and noise, you have maybe a, a several hundred or a thousand pieces of MH370 that have been floating for two years and then have washed ashore. And so you imagine like this is truly needle in a haystack situation. Yeah, but like I was saying, it's not only that he was finding all these insane pieces in an insane sort of way. He also has these like amazingly like rich and folksy stories about, you know, he in the seaside village of mainland Madagascar, he, he spots a nine-year-old girl using a scrap of MH370 debris to fan a kitchen fire. Yeah. Uh, and then another guy turns out, he told this to the Guardian, uh, when I put word around the village, another guy turned up with another piece he had been using as a washing board for clothes. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about this, right? Yeah. Because when I heard the, the this girl, I, call, I think of this as the Lendra story. It took me a long time to figure out that her name was Lendra. Yeah. But this little girl, she was seven years old. She actually existed as far as I can tell. And her name was Lendra. And Blaine was in a village in Madagascar. And he somehow spots a little girl using a piece of MA370 to fan a fire. Okay. Now, what kind of object do you fan a fire with? A flat object, a lightweight flat object. Like uh, I sometimes use when I do my campfires, I will take like a newspaper. Sure. Or a magazine. Or you could use um, you know, lots of different things. Yeah. But how about a piece of MA370? <laughs> Would that do the trick? Sure. But it's like, really? I mean, of all the infinitude of things that you could use because they're light and flat and you can flap it and make a wind over a fire, you happen to have a piece of MA370? That, I mean, I, that literally boggles my imagination. It also sounds like Gilligan's Island. I mean, this isn't some undiscovered tribe, right? I mean, like, it's... Well... Uh, she, the, 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 the way they're just, he's describing the poverty in a material sort of way is he exaggerating at all or is it really it's really i mean madagascar is a very poor country yeah um it is a very i've been there um i've i've been not to this particular part of it but um i have been to eastern it's been a while (laughs) let me not make too many bold statements okay but but i was there and i was kind of shocked at how how poor it is um i do remember a story about somebody who was assigned to um, supervise some work at a at an office bureau of the of the Madagascar government, and when they got there, nobody nothing was being done because they didn't have any pencils. Like nobody had given them any pencils, so they couldn't do anything. Okay. So it is a de- bitterly, bitterly poor place. But they're like they're villagers living by the sea. They fish. They have you know their huts. They have you know. It's not um, like castaway. Where... They're not castaways, okay. and it's and so and so and when he told this story about the guy who like found. Um, a piece and he was using it as like a, a scrubbing board. It's like, come on, they've got wood. They've got, you know, pieces of, of metal. They're not like stone age. And so, they, so, so he was kind of telling the stories and which is fine. But then what, what, what really got me, what kind of doubled down my incredulity was when I encountered him telling the story a different way. I was going to say that because sometimes he mentions the girl, sometimes he doesn't, you know, it's, just there are all these different stories about the same thing and that's why it sounds so fanciful to me so yeah he so after i read the account in the guardian uh there was another account that he gave on a facebook page where he talked about putting out the word at the village and people bringing in these pieces to him to mention of this this girl with the thing and then there was another telling of it where he was staying at this woman's house 
and he was eating breakfast and this little girl had a bag of toys and she opened it up and on the top of the bag there was this piece of MH370. And I was like, okay, Andy, I was talking before about like if you think someone is bullshitting, yeah, look for inconsistencies in their story. And so why was he so he told this story two different ways? Different really differently too. Really different yeah, ways. Those, those are like the kind of details ways. that you don't mess around with. I mean, that's like the flavor to the whole story here. So I thought to myself, okay, here is a story that I can check. I can find out if this is true. And so he had mentioned the village or the peninsula on this island. And so I actually called up some Westerners who were living in Madagascar. And I said, can you like, can we hire a guy to go there? And it's hard to travel in Madagascar. They, they kind of cited these crazy prices to me. And they wound up hiring like a local guide who like took a boat over there and, went and okay. found this village and found this woman. It was all like a little suspicious. Uh, I, I was trying to do it on the cheap. And so, but he said that he found this woman. Um, the girl's mother, had, right? Huh? He found the girl's mother. He found the girl's mother, he said, and the girl had died. Lenda had died. This was, so this was two years after the, the finding but at this point, and Lendra was no more. And, but the mother said that Lendra really liked to collect stuff from the beach, and she had found this piece, and she had tons of junk, and she used to play with it piece because it it was like a honeycomb, and she pretended that she was collecting honey, and so she would go around and and so I I mean so I don't know I don't know I, the whole the whole thing seems pretty weird and and a, and a, and a parent, parenthetical I should add is that this particular piece when the Malaysian authorities looked at it they were like this is not from MA three seventy so the whole thing is a bit of a um, red herring in a sense. But except that it does demonstrate that, if nothing else, why is he telling different stories? Why can't he just tell the one actual story? But then the, the other thing is, another thing worth noting is that the other piece he collected at the same time from the other neighbor who used it for washing board, supposedly, mm -hmm. there's turned out to be actually not only a real piece of MA370, but a really important piece of MA370. It turned out to be part of the nose gear door. And it collapsed in a really interesting way that I think we'll talk about in a future episode. All right. So he did find real pieces. He found some maybe not real pieces, but he found them all in a very colorful sort of way that his description changed based on who he was talking to. He's what they call in literature, unreliable narrator. All right. Well, let's talk about this guy. All right. Let's, cause I think his biography, and we're going to keep saying bullshit over and over again on this episode, <laughs> so I might have to change our rating. But okay. um, <laughs> Wait, do we have a rating, like a family friendly Well, it rating? says, does it contain explicit language? But I feel like bullshit's not that explicit. You can say it on TV, I think. Well, if you say it every 10 seconds, it's probably worse. Yeah, no, I'm just testing it. I'll stop. Sorry. <laughs> You're going to be like the George Carlin of Yeah, like, I'm going to say it seven times and see what happens. So he's from San Francisco. He was raised in Carmel. He studied political science at the University of Oregon moved to Seattle and he got a job at Seafirst Bank. His childhood is really interesting because his father was actually a historical figure. Oh, that's right. His father was the Supreme, this, the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. Oh, that's even better. Not only that, but he was the longest serving Chief Justice. 
And so he served for very many years with distinction. And one of his like crowning achievements was overturning the law that allowed um, the government to throw Japanese American citizens into internment camps. And okay. so he's like, like he's a progressive, like kind of a titan of California law. But he was he was really old when he met um, Blaine's mother. She was like a, um, a law clerk of his or something. She was like in her 20s and he was much older. And Blaine was, this guy was 69 when Blaine was born. So he kind of really wasn't too present when Blaine and his mother, like when they would go tra like traveling around the world and stuff. Okay, so he calls himself um, a retired attorney, retired, but he didn't practice law. He worked for, yeah, this is the part I got wrong here. He worked okay. for uh, Washington State Senator Roy Moore. Um, but he didn't practice law. I mean, he kind of had this sort of peripatetic youth where he, you know, he, he really does seem to be, I mean, his, he was probably brilliant. His father was like brilliant. Um, and his mother sounds like a character too. And he had all this energy and all this, uh, all this intelligence. And so he, um, was in, he sort of dabbled in all sorts of things. So his, uh, his, his. Resume gets a little weirder after this, or a little more interesting even. After his short stint at the bank, he moved to Olympia, Washington. He worked for the state senator, and then mm -hmm. he joined the U.S. State Department. Yeah. So he's interest, He's fascinated by – he. So, so he had traveled, as I said, with his mother when he was younger. And I think very early on, he kind of – the international – cultural you know possibilities uh, had its hooks in him uh, and he was fascinated by the world he wanted to uh, he wanted to engage in the world and 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 you know so he uh, he joined the state department pretty briefly 1986 to 1990 age 29 to 33 you corroborated this you actually called the state department I they did. confirmed that he worked there they understandably wouldn't tell you it was anything other than political affairs and back to the Seattle Met. But he was stationed, he was stationed abroad. Briefly. Yeah, it says he was, he spent time, well, according to the Met, he spent time with the rebels in Afghanistan, photographed there holding an assault rifle. Um, that seems to be, the State well, Department says that he. I think heard, he had a picture of somebody, like, I have to, now I have to, like, um, see if I can't, like, figure this out. But um, he. I have a hard time believing the State Department was sent. I mean, they sent people to Pakistan back then, but they weren't generally sending them into Afghanistan at the end of the. Well, Soviet a friend War of mine who actually did spend some time in Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, he said that the State Department had a lot of people in Pakistan. It wouldn't send them into Afghanistan, but the CIA would. And, you know, the way that they kind of do covers and everything, I, I wouldn't really draw anything from okay. this but i think it is worth noting he was actually stationed for a year in like i forgot rio or something yeah rio is is what the notes say so we don't have proof that he was in afghanistan but we do know that he was stationed in rio yeah he was an actual state department employee um in the political side um but so yeah no this is a guy who has legitimate credentials which doesn't make him cia at all it's in fact, I wouldn't even go there, but I think it's it's gonna 
it's going to come back that either he was involved in something covert or he says he was. That's my take on it. He's he's in the world of international affairs. And like there's a neighborhood of international affairs that's like diplomacy. There's a neighborhood that's like espionage. There's a neighborhood that's commercial, whatever. There's a lot. And they all inter- sort of flow into each into one another. But yeah. So his um, this is, again, where he is talking about his own resume. But you can tell if you believe him that he spent quite a bit of time in the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union. He was says he was there in the late 80s when the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse. And he decided to capitalize on it. He lived for 10 years. He lived off and on in the newly capitalist Russia. He mm-hmm. said he was a consultant to new business owners and making a lot of money that would um, finance his globetrotting. So that's what he said to the Seattle Met in when he first started talking to journalists. So this is right after he became famous. Okay. So at first he made no bones about it. And indeed, when he first talked to me, and we should play the audio of this. Yeah. But we were talking about it and he said that, yeah, I, I, was, I spent time in Russia. In fact, I speak fluent Russian. And I went to, I was very interested in the famous mystery of the Tunguska meteorite or whatever. They don't really know if it was a meteorite for sure, but is there was the this thing weird that killed explosion. The dinosaurs? Is this Sorry? Is this the thing that killed all the dinosaurs? No, this was like in 1911. Oh, the 1910? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was like it that was, big huge one was... that knocked out all the windows across all of Russia. Okay. Something like that. I know. So he went, he went to this super remote um, part of Russia where I'm sure nobody speaks English. I can tell you that the first one was about uh, 20 years ago when I was uh, living and working in Russia. Um, I was the second American to ever go to the epicenter of the Tunguska meteorite. Oh, wow. You're the second American? It was a meteorite. Yeah. Wow. And I trekked around there. I looked for something. I talked to people. I talked to scientists about it because I had access to, I speak Russian fluently. I had access to Russian scientists drinking vodka with them. They tell me what they really thought. So that was really the first one. And he bragged about how he talked to scientists and talked to local people. And he could just, the thing is, Andy, we and I started, you and I started to talk about this a little bit earlier. My assertion as someone, I started studying Russian after MA370 happened for reasons that you can understand. Yeah. And I had already been studying uh, German and French. And so German, French is, I, I don't know, I'd studied it in high school. But I don't think French is that hard. German, I found quite hard at first. It has its complexities. Sure is. Russian is like on a completely other scale. It is the Russian verb is a thicket from which you will never emerge. And um, I don't know. You seem skeptical about that. You think it's I'm actually okay. So actually, I'm not skeptical about that at all because I found French to be relatively easy, despite my bad pronunciation in these previous episodes. I took German in college, and I couldn't grasp it at all like the gerontive tense or whatever it was called i like i just didn't go anywhere so i went back to french i did try a little bit of russian and it was it might as well have been you know japanese or something it didn't feel like anything anything western whatsoever so it is an extremely hard language to learn so the idea that he could have just kind of picked it up on the side that's unless this guy is a savant when it comes to languages, that seems unlikely to me. Well, we hear him talking French in one of these doc, in one of these documentaries that we've played clips of before. He is bad. He is ba- His French is awful. Um, and so 
if I, but here's the thing, and I think this is an important thing to talk about. When you learn languages, you're very painfully aware that there's different kinds of fluency. It's one thing to be able to read a newspaper. Sure. It's another thing to be able to watch a movie. And it's another thing entirely to walk into a crowded bar where people are going blah, 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 and there's music in the background and, the, and they're talking really fast and they're using slang and da, da, yeah. da. It's, that is the sort of apex. Okay, and I've he's got, saying yeah. he's saying that he can go into a bar in Russia and talk to the locals and make friends and get okay and pick up information kind of on the QT because he just is so fluent. All right. So I, this is like so we're this is like deep level of in Russia. Yeah. So I got I got some things to say about this. Okay. Um, so he was in Russia in the early '90s when he was done with the State Department, and somehow he claims to be an outstanding speaker of Russian. Yeah. Now, I will tell you that because I went to GW, I went to George Washington University. I know plenty of people who wound up working for the State Department in the Foreign Service, and one of my good friends did. And on each three-year hitch, they send him to another country where he needs to learn another language from scratch. And it's like a one-year intensive language program, no matter what the language is, and you're expected to be fluent in it. It's 24-7, basically, for that yeah. year. That's really wild. It is. And it's hard. And this guy is is just really gifted when it comes to languages. Yeah. If we've heard Blaine speak bad French, I'm still agreeing with you that I have a hard time thinking that in this short period of time, he became so fluent in Russian that he could go into the bar and learn things, much less start his own business in, in Siberia. Well, well, this is what's leading. Okay. We've established that he's an unreliable narrator. So we're trying to find independent sources of information to confirm it. And sure enough, if you try to do a little bit of digging, it doesn't actually take that much. It turns out that there are actually some documentable ties between Blaine and Russia. First of all, he has registered in the state of Washington a company. He established a company called Siberia Pacific Company, which was based in his Seattle condo. It was based in a Seattle condo, but who did he start it with? Sounds like two Russians based on this article of incorporation here that I'm seeing. Mikhail Pilipuk and Sergei Kuznetsov. Um, right. So Kuznetsov is a super, super common Russian name. It's imp It was impossible to find who this this guy was. But Pilipuk is a more unusual name. And I spent a, not a huge amount of time, but some time trying to track this guy down. I wound up hiring a Russian helpful person via one of these online sites that let you hire people. And he like the guy didn't like answer the phone. This guy like has some kind of metal trading company in this sort of, it's sort of like the Ohio of Russia. It's like in the middle of Russia and it like used to be a steel town and it's probably sort of half dying now. Is this the but, kind of thing that American tourists just wander into and start businesses? Yeah, you, absolutely not. Absolutely I not. Think so. And so, um, so he's starting this company with two Russians um, in like 1992. The Soviet Union has just fallen apart. The company is just opening up to business and capitalism. A lot of this is when the country basically gets divvied up by the oligarchs, yeah. um, stripped for parts and stolen, basically. Um, and he, but people, and I, I, you know, F, you know, full disclosure. I myself went to Russia for the first time at the same time. Um, <clears throat> I was living in Hong Kong and I 
uh, met some guys from a trade delegation from Vladivostok. And so I wound up spending a week in Vladivostok that summer. And then I went back the following year and I'd say for a month and it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, it was, it was really amazing. And it was just like to talk to Russians who had just kind of emerged from the deep yeah. freeze of the Soviet Union. Uh, and I, I remember saying to them, like, you guys have such a bright future. I mean, the Russian people have this amazing intellectual history. You've got the, all the resources, this huge expanse. And they were like, no, they're like, we can't get out of our own way. Nothing will work. And I was like, come on, be positive. And they're like, no, we're Russians. That's, you're, you're an American. You think like that. We don't. Um, <clears throat> I still have affection for Russians. I, I, I like learning the Russian language, even though it torments me endlessly. So, um, I, I mean, are you, th are you implying that maybe Gibson was at the right place at the right time and he potentially helped these fledgling, fledgling new democracy enthusiasts through some stuff or like what? Well, what did he all do we know, guys? all I can tell you is what we know, okay. which is that he started this company with these two guys who have not been able to reach. Um, I reached out to the organizer of a conference that he took part in. Uh, and he, he gave a presentation about how to do business in secret Soviet cities and a, a secret. So obviously dur during the Soviet union, there was a lot of secrecy. A lot of things were, were, could not access. And in particular, every Soviet city that had a nuclear power plant in it was uh, some category of secret city. You, you just couldn't do business with it. Yeah. So the Soviet union collapses and all of these things that were secret are now not secret. But they sort of were tangled in like this sort of skein of old laws that hadn't been abolished yet. Yeah. And, and, and Blaine per, probably perceived that there was a lot of opportunities here. There was like all of this technology. There sure. were all these scientists and there were deals to be done. So he got involved in – so his, he – so I was able to confirm that this is true when he said like he was giving advice on companies who wanted to do business in the Soviet Union. And he particularly was, was, was dealing in a particular area of law. And I found this really interesting because in his Indiana Jones phase, he kind of came across as this bumbling, kind of sweet, slightly addled, kind of idealistic. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, non-entity, basically. But he was actually smart. We know that he's smart. We know that he has like a wide variety of experience. He's like an ex, you know, um, State Department guy. And so, and he's, he's kind of entrepreneurial. He's, and so I talked to this guy who ran this conference that he took part in and he said, well, frankly, it had been a couple of years and he like, didn't remember it that well, because all of this is like sort of late nineties, circa 2000. And he said, a lot of the people who are taking part in this conference were this sort you know, they would fly into like, uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Ekaterinburg you know, the big cities and, and they would do business with the big money people. And then they would go back to where they came from. But Blaine kind of not surprisingly, given what we've known about his tendency to like want to crawl around the world, mm -hmm. he was going to all the little cities. He was, he had this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of, of the real Russia. You could say he deep, deep knowledge. Yeah. This, this, um, this conference was in Obninsk and indeed Glenn Schweitzer who organized it confirmed that he was actually there. Right. And he said he found out to be an interesting guy because he wasn't like most of the Americans there. Right. So, okay. He so really so we, we had earlier touched on the idea, Andy, that, well, is he really, since his French is so terrible, could his Russian really be that good? And I think that if, if he spent a decade traipsing around the backwaters of Russia, involving himself in 
areas of arcane law. And I have had, I've spent, for reasons that will become clear in future episodes, I've spent a, a little bit of time looking at post-Soviet legal documents. And yeah, like, yeah. it's like long pages of Cyrillic text. I mean, you have to know, to do what he was doing, I think you'd have to have, there's degrees of fluency, but you would have to have pretty strong Russian, I would say. He did come back in 2004 and he participated, or at least he was at a department, U.S. Department of Commerce uh, event in Washington, D.C. called International Travel to the U.S. Dialogue on the Current State of Play. He didn't speak. No one remembers him there. But then in between 2005 and 2008, he ran a travel company called Nason. He seems to have been involved in this sort of marginal seeming Central Asian travel company. And I guess he was running. You can imagine them sort of being these kind of Indiana Jones-esque adventure tours to places that, you know, that probably he found really fascinating, but that like was so way too weird for the mainstream. He was um, a supervisor and consultant of ecological tours in the Tajikistan. It's really funny Park. because we've talked about how like this whole story kind of overlaps with my own backstory. Yeah, yeah. But it's like one of the things I was doing in, in myself at these times was I was kind of at the tail end of my career as an adventure journalist. So I was traveling to places like Greenland mm -hmm. that I found really interesting. And like, so Air Greenland had like opened a direct flight from Baltimore um, to Greenland. To Nook? And they were hoping it? to fill a 737 with tourists fascinated by, and Greenland is truly one of the most fascinating places on earth, but nobody wants to go there. Nobody wants to spend thousands and thousands Weird. of dollars. So anyway, I can just, I, I can feel for him that he wanted to do this kind of tourism, but I don't think it worked. Okay. Well, I'm still, I'm getting a sense that he did some of the stuff that he said he did. Mm -hmm. I just don't know if he did it in the way he did. Mm -hmm. um, but now we got to talk about the elephant, one of the many elephants in the room. And that's Vladimir Gololobov. Gololobov, yeah. Gololobov, who is quoted in several uh, profiles of Gibson. Right. And this man describes him as a friend who met Gibson two decades ago. Well, the American was in Siberia on business trips. Right. This situation is a little bit weird, and it's not for necessarily the obvious reasons that may or may not become obvious to you as we talk about. Tell me, tell me about this guy. So as Blaine is in the central part of Russia, what I had called the Ohio of Russia, mm -hmm. um, he meets a young student um, named Vladimir Gololobov, who at the time is, I think, around 19. Mm -hmm. And Blaine, I think, himself was probably, I guess, in his, his 40s, 40s okay. right? And they form an attachment that is very long-lasting. Now, this guy... You, you want you can tell us about like where he went to school. And yeah, stuff. so he was born in 1977. He entered his master's in English and German from uh, one of the Russian state universities, and then he interestingly earned a master's degree in international trade policy and studies from Monterey, California Institute of International Studies. Right. So he was in the United States within two decades, and um, well, he wasn't just anywhere in the United States. This right. is where yeah. Monterey, this area is where Blaine is from. 
Yeah, all three of the addresses from Gololobov are addresses that um, belong to Gibson. Right. Carmel, Monterey County, Monterey County, and likely they were living together. Um, well, they were sharing. They, they were sharing an address, so it seems like they were living together. And then in twenty or two thousand two, Gololobov moved to Washington D.C. He started working as a lobbyist for right. the Coalition of Service Industries, which I don't know what that means. Right. But he was handling the Russian WTO assess. Uh, what was he doing there? He was he was lobbying on behalf of the World Trade or the Russian uh, part of the World Trade Organization, and Gibson bought a condo in D.C. that is where Golalabov lived. And then in 2013, Gibson sold the condo to Golalabov for about a hundred thousand dollars less than market value. Right. Um, right. So the so the the story is that, and the and the reason we're talking about all of this is that. I had been publicly saying that there might be a link between MH370 and Russia, that there that that there was a, a cybersecurity vulnerability in this plane, and that if it had been exploited, the plane went north to Kazakhstan and ultimately must have been under been taken by Russians. Debris starts turning up, and it stops turning up, and then this guy has all of this debris. All this debris is coming from the hands of this one guy who is fluent in Russian and is um, has deep personal and business connections to Russia. And so I was like, is this coincidental? I mean, what are the odds, really? They seem low. Uh, I should point out that we are not outing Blaine Gibson as gay. We have nothing that there's no value in doing that because I've, I've certainly read some of the comments where saying like you're asserting his sexuality that don't care but the fact is uh he had this relationship with a russian who was fluent in english he worked in assorted russian legit sketchy businesses there's there's some there's some connection here that may or may not have anything to do with mh370 but this guy his fingers are all, all over russia and vice versa or at least he yeah. wants us to believe that because he said it. And again, it, get, it gets it gets back to um, the question of, okay, to what extent is someone's story consistent? When I first started talking to Blaine, he was not shy about his connection to Russia. When he talked to the MetLife journalist in the months after the discoveries, he was not sh particularly shy about it. Um, but in the time that, the past, he came to deny that he had connections to Russia. He um, stopped, he basically canceled his um, Russia Pacific company. It doesn't, really? he didn't maintain it anymore after I started writing about it. Um, when the journalist William Langevisha actually went to um, Southeast Asia to meet with Blaine he said that he didn't that he had only a kind of short-term passing involvement in the tourism business in the russian far east and basically pretty much denied this thing and it's like it kind of reminds me of when donald trump was running for president in 2016 he was like yeah no i have nothing to do with russia and then it turned out that he had he was actually negotiating major deals and you know this idea of like lying about your involvement 
it's the lying is is more suspicious than the involvement almost. In fact, you actually did get a hold of Galalovov at one point. Eventually, I said at some point I have to reach out to this guy and say, I have all this documentary evidence that you have a long personal history with this guy. I would like to ask you. I have to at least try. I didn't think he would talk to me, but I had to at least ask. Yeah. And he, at first he just kind of like denied it, right? Well, let's play it. Let's play the audio. Okay. Jeff Wise, I'm a journalist working on a story about MH370. And um, listen, I know that the, I don't know if, if your office is like all about to run off to listen to the Michael Cohen testimony. Jeff, I yeah. really don't know anything about that. I uh, don't know the person you're asking me about. I haven't talked to the person you're asking me about. So yeah, I, no, no, I, I'm sorry, not I, I, Blaine. This is about Blaine Allen Gibson. Yes. You're saying you don't know anything about Blaine Allen Gibson? I haven't talked to him for, for in a long time. Well, could I could I ask you about how you know him? No. Um. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. So Galalovov did reluctantly admit that he knew him but not in the way that it seems like he did. But Well, he just didn't want to, he clearly just didn't want to have any involvement in it. I mean, he's, Glalabov is now like a pretty senior, he's a lobbyist. He works in Washington and like, you know, doing what lobbyists do, interfacing between business and government. Um, he's part of the same, you know, we talked before about like the world of like foreign affairs and government affairs and like people mm-hmm. lobbying and people getting, you know, relationships and everything. And, um, He's in that world. I'm sure he doesn't need to. I mean, I'm sure it's probably hard to be a Russian. I mean, it depends. And do on anything right now? Yeah, uh, yeah, anything legit right now? Being a Russian, yeah. it's not a. Yeah, it's not something you want to brag about. But so, but so for years, I've been kind of raising questions about Blaine. Blaine has continued to be a beloved figure among many, a figure of some questions among others. Um, but, you know, anytime someone makes a documentary about MH370, they go to ask him if he'll talk. He is a very elusive guy. Like when Langavisha tried to reach him, like he wouldn't tell what country he was in. And Blaine would like would talk on social media about how he was opening a bar hmm. somewhere in Southeast Asia. But like, and I actually reached out to like, because I used to know a lot of expats in Southeast Asia because I lived in Hong Kong. And mm-hmm. so I reached out to my former network and I'm like, does anybody know where this guy's bar is? And nobody had heard of it. And we couldn't figure out if it was in Myanmar or Laos or where. Um, and I just never really figured out where this bar was. Um, so there's just like so many questions. And so if you want to go talk to Blaine, he'll meet you in some third country. He doesn't even want people to know where he is. And he claimed, he, t- he talked a fair bit about that, like there were death threats. And I think especially like when I started to raise questions, he made it sound like I was causing him to get death threats, which I just really need to make clear. There's no reason why anything that I said about Blaine would cause someone to threaten him with death. Um, and seems extreme. He's also implied that like, because he's been such a brave truth seeker in trying to find these pieces of debris that like his life has been in danger for that. And I really need to emphasize that even though he has found most of the pieces of debris. None of the pieces of debris that he's found have had the kind of evidentiary value that the flapperon had. Um, and so he hasn't really moved the needle at all in terms of understanding what happened to the plane. And when people ask him, like, what do you think happened to the plane? He's like, I don't know. He doesn't even have a theory of what, what happened to this plane. So 
Um, and, and the third piece I want to say about these death threats is that when Langevisho asked him about his death threats, it, he said that like there were these people that he'd, when he was looking for the lost Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia or something, that he had gotten on the wrong side of some people and they wanted to kill him. So like these death threats don't even have anything to do with ME370. So he's, there's a lot of stories and a lot of kind of verbiage that, that that's being spread. And a lot of it's just. So maybe he's not really getting death threats. Maybe he's being. I think it's, I, I would very much would question whether he's getting death threats. And I certainly don't think he's getting death threats because of me, but I think he's throwing these around to sort of make it seem like he's being persecuted. Yeah. And I think Andy, you and I know this idea of like, uh, larger than life people who are constantly claiming persecution. It's all of a piece in a sense. I can't imagine what you're possibly referring to, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to antagonize people. I don't need to antagonize, but, okay. um, but listen, I mean, the, the point is that this guy, I have been, I have been kind of a jerk. I've, I've, I think I've said from the get go that like all the, all, all my behavior in this last 10 years, like the worst behavior that I've done is in relation to him. Cause it kind of got under my skin and I'm like not a fully mature person, maybe, but I, I apologize for that, but we have been somewhat at odds. I just can't to this day, I can't make sense of how this guy can go to a beach um, alone among humanity. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say, I know we're really running long, running really long on this, but a lot of people who say that it's not that weird that he keeps finding these pieces say that there's just a ton of pieces of MA370 lying around. So the only reason that Blaine finds so many pieces is because he's the only person looking. Not true. And if there were other Blaines, right, not true. If there were other Blaines, they, they would they find so many pieces? There are other people that are looking, and we've, we've talked before about these like large-scale beach cleanups. There was one in Australia. Um, there was another one in South um, Africa that was of a similar scale, a yearly beach cleanup. Mm-hmm. People were given out, out sheets saying, like, this is what you should look for. Nothing turned up. Um, and I talked to a guy who runs fishing uh, tours out to sandbars in the Indian Ocean, and this is exactly the kind of place where he found no step. This is where stuff would, and stuff does wash up. And these guys were very much looking for stuff. And they did find at one point this kind of thing that had like nuts and bolts on it and stuff. But it wasn't from MH370. People are looking, and people did find some stuff. I mean, Blaine wasn't the only person who found stuff, but he's the only person who found stuff when he was deliberately looking for it. Well, if I can wrap this in a nice bow, something before I even met you that I saw, I, I saw in the Netflix documentary that struck me as peculiar was. Um, his recognition that he think that he knows that people think he's a spy, but he said something a little bit more specific that I thought was weird. He said, quote, people say I'm a Russian spy. People say I'm a Chinese spy. Right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who's saying he's a Chinese spy? What's that all about? Well, it's about saying like, um, you know, it's, it's by making the whole allegation seem absurd. By saying like people say I'm a Russian oh. spy, people say I'm a Chinese spy, people say I'm a Balkan okay. spy. It's okay. like no, nobody's saying any of these things. People are only saying that you're a Russian spy, and they're saying that you're a Russian spy because a, if this plane was taken north, it was taken by Russians, and b, you spent a decade in Russia, you have a long-term life partner from Russia, um, and and you found all the pieces. And you found all the pieces, so it's like, like as if someone told you, go look here you, and find the you, pieces. I can't. I, I, I you might be completely innocent. Do you think but he, there's, it's not crazy to think that, they, they, I mean. Do you think, I mean, let me put you on the spot. Do you think he's a Russian spy? 
so we are going to break some ground in this show. And I think that when we do, the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are going to start to fit together. And you know how it is when you make a jigsaw puzzle, you start to, it all, this thing, whole thing fits together. And then this whole thing fits together. Mm-hmm. And then there comes that magical moment where like those two things fit together. And now you have a really big piece of the puzzle. So things that seem unrelated start to fit together. And, and so what you thought was a blank space now isn't a blank space anymore. So I will leave it at that. But I will say that when, when all the, either everything is confusing and doesn't make sense or everything fits together and everything makes sense. You want to know what I think? Yes. And I also know what you're talking about. So I have some advanced notice of some of this, but if I were to analyze where we are right now, based on everything I've heard, I don't think he is a Russian spy as much as possibly an asset, Mm. maybe a pawn. I think that perhaps someone gave him some information about where he could look to find this stuff. And those people were Russians and that he was just, uh, he, I don't think he knows the whole plot, but I think he knows enough to find his fame and fortune as Indiana Jones because someone told him where to look and those people were Russians. I think something that we've had occasion to think about in the last few years is how, you know, it's not just like spies and not spies, right? right. There's very, there's, there's all different kinds of ways of getting entangled in yes. the various arms of espionage, right? Right. And we've had like Carter Page, who's mm-hmm. like this weird weirdo who got like turned into an asset. Um, and yeah, there's, there's all kinds of ways to get entangled. So um, I don't think he's James point. Bond. Let me put it that way. I don't think this yeah. guy's a super spy, but I think that something is definitely fishy about the way he found these. But I think this is a good point also to point out that this kind of bumbling Mr. Magoo, mm-hmm. like just kind of ludicrously self-styled elderly um, Harrison Ford character is actually a really sharp guy. I'd like to know what he's up to right now. And I have a feeling he's probably not going to reply to your emails, but I don't, I mean, I don't, what, what, what would he even say to me? I don't, I mean, episode 21 title music was composed and performed by Jacob John, who was the sponsor of episode 19. And we appreciate that. Speaking of Seattle, Jacob John's in Seattle and we're only a couple episodes away, Jeff, until we hit that magical 10 year anniversary. So there are some major, major developments coming up in the next few weeks. I think it's going to get heavy. Okay, I'm ready. It's going to get heavy, and I would encourage people who are listening and watching to stay tuned because we are not here just to sit on our thumbs. We are definitely not. And again, this is a the, the shameless plug that obviously you should be liking and subscribing, but if you want to talk about sponsorship for this episode, you can visit our show page at deepdivemh370.com or quite simply, you can email me at andy at onmilwaukee.com and we can talk about that. The numbers are growing. The subscriptions are growing. We're All this stuff is happening at the right time, Jeff. We're really lining this thing up for, for some blockbuster episodes and we have a lot more to talk about. If it sounds like we're overwhelming you, if you're an audio listener, uh, either you could become a video listener or you could just visit our show page, deepdivemh370.com because we have all the graphics and the videos and a longer version of this podcast that you can read and you can comment on and we're reading them, so keep them coming. Jeff, this was a, this was a big one, but... I really enjoyed it. This is the one I was waiting for. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, it was it was it was good, and uh, we got more in store. So thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye bye.